please this morning to the book of Ephesians. I just want to read uh, two verses there in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, just at the beginning of our worship period, Clifford uh, quoted from this uh, chapter here. Ephesians chapter 1. And just reading verse 5 and 6. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Hallelujah. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. There is something that is inbuilt within us. It's inherent to every man and every woman. The human soul desires acceptance with God. Acceptance with God. And men will go to great lengths in order to win God's approval as they feel I think of examples like each year coming up to Easter time in the Philippines, our Filipino friends are at the back, will vouch for this, that there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of young men who will allow themselves to be kneeled, literally kneeled to a cross in order to absolve their sins or to identify with Christ's sufferings or to find favor and approval with God. In India... So-called holy men will suffer all kinds of personal deprivation and will sit on poles for days, for weeks, for months, sometimes for years on end in order to gain some kind of approval with their particular God that they worship. In Christ's day, of course, the Pharisees had all kinds of man-made rules and regulations built into their understanding of Scripture in order to preserve what they felt was God's law and they had to preserve that so they had hundreds of other laws that they made invented in order to preserve God's law. And all of these laws uh, limited people terribly. They put burdens on people that they couldn't ever hope to fulfill. And all of that was to, to get God's acceptance and approval as they thought. But the believer in Christ uh, offers no merit of his own. He understands and realizes that he doesn't have any merit any longer. Understands fully that he has made us accepted in the beloved. And so we have ceased from striving and struggling to be accepted by God knowing that we have been accepted by God in Christ. He has made us accepted in the beloved. He has made us. It is His work. It is His grace. It's His sacrifice through His Son. And this acceptance by God is both past, present, and future. We have been accepted. We are accepted right now in Christ. We will be accepted in eternity. Behold what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. First John 3, 1. Behold, look with wonder and amazement. Be astounded, we could say, at the manner of God's love that he should call us his sons. So I want to speak to you this morning for just a little bit about the love that God has got for us. This amazing love that God has got for us. First of all, it's unconditional. It is not conditional upon who we are or what we have or what we do. It is predicated completely on what he has done for us. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. Whenever we were cold and indifferent, whenever we were even rebellious against God, yet he sent his son to die for us. We have been made accepted in the beloved. God accepts us because his son has made us acceptable to him. Did you hear me there? God accepts us because his son has made us acceptable to him. Otherwise, we would be unacceptable. Nothing we could ever do would be enough. The thing that makes us acceptable to God is when we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. That makes us acceptable. Now that is difficult for men to grasp. Because again, there's something within all of us that wants to earn God's favor, to win God's approval. We feel we have to do something. And the hardest thing to get someone who doesn't know Christ to save, the hardest thing to get them to do is to understand that you don't have to do anything, that nothing you can do would ever be enough. <laughs> That's why he has made us acceptable in the beloved because there's nothing we can do would be acceptable. God's standard is so high, it's so holy, it's so great, it's beyond us. There's only one could keep his standard. There's only one was that holy, there was only one that great, and that was his son. That's why he had to die for us, to pay the price for us. But we feel that we have to do something. And, and the trouble is that nothing that we could ever do would be enough. There's absolutely nothing that you could do for God that would be worth more than his son dying for you. Do you understand that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But we try to earn God's favor. No work of ours, no life of ours, no sacrifice of ours would be greater than the gift and the life and the sacrifice of God's Son on the cross. Now let me qualify something. Even though God's love for us is absolutely unconditional, it's free, it's a gift of grace, but none of it would avail to us, none of it would be any good to us until and unless we receive it. You could buy someone a gift and you could offer them the gift but it would do them no good whatsoever until and unless 
they reach out and receive that gift and take it. And salvation is no different. It's a gift of God. God's love expressed in a wonderful gift of life and he reaches out to us and he said, here, accept it, receive it. It's a gift. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do. Well, accept, accept my grace. Accept my favor. Accept what I'm offering as a gift. And this is the wonderful thing about the gospel. This is the wonderful thing about salvation. Jude verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So God's love is unconditional. But then it's unconventional. It is not like any other love. Behold what manner of love. The manner of God's love is different. It's special. It's unique. It's a quality that you can't find anywhere else. Now in the New Testament days, there were four words that describe love. Eros, and Sturgio, and Phileo, and Agape, or Agape, whatever way you want to pronounce that. Eros, Sturgio, Phileo, and Agape. Now, Eros was a word that was used when speaking of sexual love. It's where we get the word erotic from. Eros is a selfish love. It's a self-gratifying love. It's a demanding love. It's motivated purely by the flesh. Its impulsive, lustful desires are selfish. It's the basest word for love that was used. It was the lowest and basest word that was used. It's not a word that God wants associated with his people. And that's why you cannot find it in the New Testament. It's not a word that God associates with his people. Sturgeo is a word that is mainly used when it comes to the love of a family with parents and their children or with siblings amongst each other. It's a family type of love. And, and we understand that very well, don't we? Some of us are blessed with wonderful families. Maybe some of you, maybe there's all kinds of tensions and stresses and strains within family. But for those of you who have got a, a great family relationship, a close family relationship, you understand that word. There's a, there's a love, there's a bond between you. And, and that's Sturgill. The Apostle Paul, interestingly, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, he uses this word in a negative term, where he says that one of the signs of the last days will be in relation to uh, this love, and he says it would be without natural affection. Without natural affection. There's a, there's a love within a family that's natural to have, an affection that is natural. 
And Paul says in the last days, one of the signs will be that that family love will break down, it will disintegrate, it will deteriorate, and it will accelerate. And who would argue that in these days that we live in, that that's the very thing that's happening? where the family unit has come under such attack, even by government who wants to redefine marriage and redefine family, it's come under such attack. Paul says that would be one of the signs that we're living in the last days before Christ comes. So that's sturgio. And then the word phileo. Phileo is a word that denotes a faction between two or more people. It speaks of devotion. It speaks of friendship. And from the word phileo, we get familiar words like Philadelphia. city of Philadelphia in America. So-called because of this word. Phileo means love and adelphos means a brother, so it's brotherly love. And philanthropic. Philanthropic, again, is two words put together. Phileo, love, and anthropos, which is mankind. So, Somebody who's philanthropic has a love for mankind. They, they do deeds for mankind. Particularly some very wealthy people, they give a lot of their money away to good causes and just causes. They're philanthropic in nature. So that's where we get that word from, phileo. Or the word philosophy. Sophos was the Greek word for wisdom. So a philosopher is a lover of wisdom. Somebody who loves to think deeply about wisdom and, and wise. Clifford, your mum there's not just too well there. Mrs. Bloomfield there, she's elderly and she, she broke a bone on her shoulder just recently and it's just maybe been giving her a little bit of this comfort. Does she need a drink of water, Clifford? Is she okay? All right, all right. Tony will just see to her there. Tony's a doctor. He'll look after him. She okay? Okay. She's all right. But the greatest word that was used is agape or agape. And this is the God kind of love. This is the highest form of love. This is the greatest love. This is a love that gives. It's not a selfish love. It's a selfless love. It's a love that gives without any thought of recompense or any thought of return. It just wants to give and to give and to give. It's a love, in fact, that's so sacrificial that if necessary, it will cause someone to lay down their lives for someone else. And that's why the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was the depth of God's love. It was so sacrificial that he was willing to give his own son and his son was willing to lay his life down for you and for me on the cross. That's the highest level of love. In Galatians 5.22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. This agapeo love that God has got put within our hearts for other people. Now this quality of love is the greatest love. This is the love that God 
has got for us. And in John chapter 21, Jesus has died and he has rose again. And he meets his disciples who have been coming in from uh, just a little bit of a fishing trip. And so he cooks them a breakfast on the shore. In verse 15, it's okay, you, you can just keep your attention on me. She's been well taken care of. She's looked after and they're dealing with her there. And if you need to get her home, Clifford, whatever you need to do, you just go ahead and do it. Okay. And so Jesus meets with his disciples that morning. He makes them a little breakfast in the shore. In verse 15 of John 21, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus came to Simon Peter, and he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now remember that Simon had denied Jesus three times. And remember also that at the Last Supper, how he said, and he implied that he loved Jesus more than they did. He says, though all these would forsake you, I'll never forsake you. So that was a proud boast. And of course he crashed and burned, didn't he, whenever he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus is taking him back to that. And he denied him three times, so Jesus is going to ask him three times, do you love me? And so he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, Jesus said, Simon, do you agapeo me? Have you got the deepest, the highest love for me? And of course, Peter, by this time, having denied his Lord three times, could not bring himself to say that. So he answers, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I am very fond of you. You know I have great affection for you. You know that I am devoted to you. But he couldn't just say, I agapale you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Agape is the word he uses again. And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo you. Couldn't do it. That great pride was gone now. He was humble. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, and this is really a tough one for him. Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? Do you even are you even fond of me? Have you, have you actually got affection for me? Boy, that was tough, wasn't it? And Peter was grieved. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He really felt it in his heart. I wonder if it was Peter thinking, he really, really knows everything about me. I wonder, is he going to expose me? I expose myself in front of everybody. I wonder, is he going to expose me? 
Because he's asking very, very deep questions. And he's even come to the point where he says, Simon, do you, are, you really, do you even, are you even fond of me? So he was grieved. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Tradition says that Peter was crucified and he requested to be crucified upside down because of the respect he had for his Saviour. The quality of love that God has got for us is this agape love, agape love. The highest, the greatest, the deepest. Human's love says, I love you if, if you do this, if you do that. Or I love you when, Prove it to me. I love you when you say this or do this. Or I will love you until. But God's love is, I love you. Full stop. Unconditional. What a love that is. I love you so much, I gave my son to die for you on the cross. No greater love is this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. How great is that? So this love is unconventional. It's also inconceivable. In Ephesians chapter 3, just across the page, Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here is a love that has got height and depth and breadth and length. Here's a love that's got dimensions. Anything with height and depth and breadth and length is strong. It's stable. It's foundational. You can build upon it. It's real. In fact, the length and the height and the breadth and the depth is a sermon all on its own, which I haven't time to go into this morning. But it's a wonderful thing. But then he adds to that. And what does he say? And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. This is inconceivable. It's incomprehensible. How can you know something that passes your knowledge? By experience. 
You can't fully understand it. You certainly will never be able to explain it, but you experience it and you know it experientially. You know it because it's happened to you. You felt it. You understood it in that sense. How do you measure love? What does a gram of love look like? What does an ounce of love look like? You can't quantify it. And yet, Paul says it's got dimensions. It's length and breadth and height and depth. It's real. It's not a fake thing. It's not an imagination. It's real. But we don't understand the length and the breadth and the depth and the height. It's beyond our comprehension. It's inconceivable to us. But we experience it. We receive it by faith. And we walk in it. And this is the wonderful, glorious thing about this love that God has got for us. You don't have to understand it. You receive it and you enjoy it. Except you become as little children, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. That little child that we dedicate, do you think it understands its mother and father's love? It just enjoys it, doesn't it? It experiences every moment of every day. And as it gets older, it experiences it all over again, more and more and more, because they'll just continue to love it forever. If your child sat you down and says, Mom, Dad, why, why do you love me? Could you explain that to them? Say, well, I'm your mom, I'm your dad, I just love you. I love you. <laughs> oh, sometimes you do things that I don't like. Sometimes I don't love the things that you do. But I will never stop loving you. You know, Claire, our daughter, who's a missionary, tells in part of her testimony, there was two years, you know, she, she went way back and just went into the world. And I remember the day she came to me. Sally was working that day. But we knew this was coming. And she came to me. It was a sunny day. I was sitting out in my back garden. I had my Bible in my lap. And she came and says, Dad, I need to speak to you. I says, okay, what is it? She says, Dad, I'm not coming back to church again. Now, that wasn't a surprise to me. I could see it coming a mile away. So here's what I said to her. I said, Claire, I'm your dad. And even though you walk away from God, and even though you'll do things that I don't even want to know, but know this much. As your father, I will never ever stop loving you. There's nothing you will do will stop me loving you. I will not like what you do. I don't even want to know about it. But I'll never stop loving you because I'm your dad. And with that she left. And I never did stop loving her. Neither did her mother. So when she found a way back, there wasn't a closed door. There was an open door and open arms. And that's how God did with us. It's not the story of the prodigal. When the prodigal come back, then the dad put the arms around and hug and kiss and welcome and make a party. Because that's the love of God. The love of God is in our hearts. And finally... It's a covenantal love. It's a covenantal love. In Ephesians 5, again just across the page. 
Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he, might that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The greatest illustration that God can use of a covenant relationship was between a husband and a wife. And he likens that between Christ and his church, the bridegroom and his bride. And every couple I have ever married that stood at the altar, I have reminded them that this is more than a contract you're making. This is a covenant. You make a contract for legal reasons. You make a covenant before God. And God has made a covenant, a love covenant with his son on our behalf for you and for me. And they entered into a covenant for you and for me. And that covenant was sealed with his blood on the cross. That's the depth of it. And God keeps covenant. He keeps covenant. Jeremiah 31 and 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. John 13 and 1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. <laughs> How long does God's last love? It's everlasting. He loves us to the end. His love is immutable. It's unchanging. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, demands my all. This morning, beloved, accept and receive the love of God in your life and walk in his love tonight in the service what I plan to do is this the apostle John addressed himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved five times five times he addressed himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved and it's interesting and every occasion where he addressed himself as that, it's interesting the context in which he addresses himself as that disciple whom Jesus loves. And every context is a context that you'll find yourself in someday, some way. And you need to know that God loves you in the midst of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.